This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, welcome back to Mariner's Pod. Thanks for being here once again, as always. I was not expecting to talk to you so quickly after the end of the regular season, but this one is important. Uh, We lost a really good friend of ours yesterday and Ray Fossey. I'm sure you've heard Ray on the air with us on this podcast or on the radio. I was thinking about it. I doubt there has been anyone from the opposition and any team, whether it's broadcaster, opposing player, opposing manager, who's been on the air with us more over the years than Ray Fossey has been. Uh, Spent parts of a dozen seasons as a catcher in the major leagues, including a short stint with the Mariners in 1977. Two-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glove winner, and spent 35 years in the Oakland Athletics booth doing radio and television, and he is going to be dearly missed. He was a great friend to all of us. One of the things that I love so much about this job is the conversations I get to have with some amazing people, and Ray Fossey is right there at the top, just a wonderful person who has lived a tremendous life and an amazing baseball life. The stories that he would tell, the conversations on the air and off the air as well. And keep in mind, the Mariners play the A's 19 times this year, and it's been like that for the last number of years. So we had a lot of opportunity to spend time with Ray and talk with Ray before games. It's kind of, you know, it's it's what happens. He would, whether we were in Oakland or they were in Seattle, he would make his way over to our booth and, We would chat. Uh, He would tell stories about his playing days or tell us about what's going on with the Oakland days now. And it was so fun and just moments I will always cherish. And when I was thinking about kind of uh, putting together a tribute for him on this podcast, it reminded me of one of the conversations we had in Oakland. And he was telling me about all the interviews he has done over the years. Now, 35 years Uh, on Oakland A's radio and television. Um, He would do a pregame interview for (laughs) nearly every game for a lot of those years. So we're talking hundreds of interviews, and he saved them all. So we were just one day having a long conversation about all his interviews. And if if you've listened to this podcast and listened to the radio for any length of time, you know that I love – Great baseball stories. I talk about it all the time. I love the history of the game. And Ray Fossey was a conduit spanning such a long stretch of baseball history. And his stories were incredible. So we had a long conversation one day in Oakland about all the interviews, you know, the Hall of Famers he's talked to, the stories he has heard. It's just great. So the next day, he comes back to the ballpark and he hands me a flash drive. And on this flash drive were a couple dozen of some of his favorites and also some interviews that involve Seattle Mariners, Dave Niehaus, for example, and Dan Wilson and Mike Blowers and some interviews like that. It was just amazing. I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. So when I heard the news that he had passed away, I, I was just up all night, essentially, just listening to one interview after another. So what I'm going to do today as kind of a tribute to Ray Fossey and something I, I hope you really enjoy, I am going to play not the entire, there's a lot of interviews, so I'm not going to play the entirety of them all, but I've picked out some of my favorite stories from some of my favorite interviews, and I'm just going to kind of roll through them back to back to back to back. And then at the very end, I am going to play, you may have heard this, I've put this on the podcast before, I am going to play the full interview 
between Ray Fossey and Dave Niehaus. But I think you're really going to enjoy this because it spans, you know, there's a lot of Hall of Famers in the mix. You'll hear from Robin Yant and Reggie Jackson and Catfish Hunter, a young Ken Griffey Jr., which is really fun. And then some stories from back in the day from Ernie Hardwell and Don Newcomb. We'll hear from a couple of teammates of Babe Ruth along the way, Lee Elia uh, on his tirade. I mean, just some really great stories. And as I was thinking about this, I think this is the best way that I can give tribute to a wonderful man and a tremendous baseball man in Ray Fossey. So I hope you enjoy this podcast as we tip our caps to a really wonderful person in Ray Fossey. One of the greatest players in Oakland A's history joins me on A's warm-up, Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson. And Reggie, it was such a great thrill playing with you. As you come back, you think about it, it's the 40th anniversary of the World Championship in 1972. Unfortunately, you got injured, couldn't play. But what was it like during that period of time for you playing with the World Champion Oakland A's, and especially the year after 72 when you were able to play it and you were the most valuable player? Well, let me, let me stop you for a second here. You went back to 72 and you talked about 73. You said maybe the greatest player in Oakland A's history. Now, I just talked to Ricky Henderson this morning. <laughs> now, he, he told me, he said, how's the second greatest doing? <laughs> well, we know that. <laughs> but, um, boy, I, I, you, know, you know, Ray, when you talk about, about Ricky, he, he undoubtedly is the greatest leadoff man yeah, in history. there's no doubt. And if you talk about players, probably in the top 15 in history, you know. Now, sometimes Ricky didn't feel like it, or Ricky wasn't quite up to it. But getting back to 72, Ray, I think you remember I pulled a hamstring there real bad and um, ruptured it coming, uh, stealing home plate. And we won that ball game, got in postseason. And uh, I was kind of hurting the whole time. And next year in spring training, I just kind of wanted to play. I wanted to see how it felt. I wanted to be on the field again. I had one of my best years, one of the most valuable player award, and, you know, hit a bunch of homers and RBIs and stuff. And Catfish might have won the Cy Young Award in 73. And then we had Holtzman and Vida, right at 120. Uh, had an off year in 72. But Boston, we had Sal and Joe Rudy, you know, and yourself and Gene Tennis and the tremendous defenders in the field and Dickie Green and uh, Mike Hegan. And I believe Billy North was a center fielder at that time. And Burt Campanaris, who's, you know, probably arguably a Hall of Famer. But boy, what a ball club we had. And, had such tremendous enjoyment and I had a heck of a year but sure had a lot of help behind it and you know we had Darren Johnson that year hit 20 home runs for us. Now Reggie, Mr. October, you were given that tag and maybe because of New York but you seem to always love the big stage. What what happened to you when I came to October and you lit up the world hitting home runs and playing great baseball? Ray, you know I had a little story when I was a young kid uh, my dad sent me to the store to get a pint of Neapolitan ice cream and the, I went down to the confection store. They had a soda fountain right. and the prescriptions, drugs and stuff. And it was Fleischer's. Fleischer <laughs> family owned it. And I didn't have enough money. So I went across the street to Kelso's, which was a delicatessen store. And I borrowed a quarter from Uncle Bob Kelso. And then I went over to the Bradshaw's. And the Bradshaw owned a neighborhood gas station. And I borrowed a quarter from Bob Bradshaw. <laughs> And I went back across the street because my dad had given me a quarter. And I bought a pint of strawberry, a pint of chocolate, and a pint of vanilla. And I went back home. And my dad patted me on the head. And he said, that's the way to make something happen, son. He said, that's what I expect of you. And so from then on in, it was kind of make it work, make it happen. If I played on a sports team in the school, Ray, and you weren't on the first string, you had to come home. There'd be no sitting. You weren't going to learn anything sitting on the bench. You had to come home and help with the chores. So it was kind of, I was raised in an, in an environment to where it was like, get the job done. Mm-hmm. And when the season got toward the end, I kind of used that same theory and philosophy um, and had my focus, you know, got a heck of a lot better. I really couldn't focus during a season like that. At the same time, Ray, there were, you know, on that ball club, the players that I named, there are eight and nine all-stars on the team and guys that, you know, with a break here and a break there, they'd have gotten in the Hall. Raleigh Fingers and, right. and Catfish Hunter right. in the Hall of Fame. You were on several all-star teams and Bando and Rudy and that crowd camping there. So, you know, while I played well and while I was a good player, I sure had a great supporting yeah. cast. 
Frankie Crossetti of the New York Yankees back in the 1930s and 40s is my guest on A's warm-up talking about Babe Ruth. And you have explained the story and the infamous story of Babe Ruth stepping out at home plate, pointing to center field, that he's going to hit the home run. Would you please explain exactly what happened in that situation where he supposedly stepped out and, and pointed to center field before hitting the home run? Well, how this came about, uh, Mark Koenig, when, when he was with the Yankees, he was a good friend of the Babes. So now Mark is in a, playing in the minor leagues, I believe, with the San Francisco Missions. Uh, so the Chicago Cubs bought him, and he came up, went up to the Cubs in August of 1932. Now Mark was a pretty good hitter. So he helped them win some games there down the stretch in that, in that last part of 1932. So now when the players come to vote for the shares of the World Series cut, they voted Mark only a half a share. So now Babe, being a good friend of Mark's, and uh, outspoken as he was at that, he uh, called them all a bunch of tightwads and more than that. And so this was all in the newspaper. So now when the series starts, naturally, the Cub players are going to razz the babe. And now he's at the bat, and they are really razzing him. So now when Root pitches, he's got a strike on him. Now the Cub, he's looking right at the Cub dugout. They really razz him some more. Two strikes, now they're really razzing him. So babe stepped back out of the box. He did not point to center field. He just raised up one finger, meaning that I have one more strike left. And that's what he meant. He did not point to center field. And the next pitch, as it was, he happened to hit the home run. Mm -hmm. So naturally, that shut the Cub players up. And of course, Babe was a happy-go-lucky kid, believe me. Mm -hmm. So the next day, naturally, the papers are going to build us up that he had pointed to center field. So the next day, in the dugout, the Babe said, if the reporters want to think that I pointed to center field, let them. I do not care. <laughs> King Griffey Jr. is my guest on A's warm-up. 21 home runs. You know, they, they talk about you only need nine more to pass Babe Ruth for the month of June. We're not even out of the month of May. How much are you getting tired maybe of talking about the number of home runs that you're hitting? Well, I, you know, it just they come in bunches, and you, know, you just got to go and keep going. And But, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going up there thinking about hitting the ball where it's pitched and driving it. You know, your manager, Lou Pinella, is, uh, I read a statement where he said home runs and RBIs, he can lead the league, but probably not the batting average because he swings at bad pitches. I don't think I've ever seen you swing at a bad pitch. How about yourself, uh, you know, as far as looking for certain pitches? Well, I do swing at uh, a couple bad pitches, but, you know, as far as, you know, I'm not a 380-type hitter. You know, I you see most of the home run hitters, you know, hit in between uh, 290 and 300, and I like to stay within that range. You know, you're an outstanding defensive center fielder. The gold gloves, obviously, and watching you play there as great almost as you're hitting. How much does it help you being the type of center field that you are that you take some of the pressure off your hitting whenever you do concentrate as much on the defense? Well, I, you know, there's, there's three parts of baseball. There's, you know, at the plate, on the bases, and defense. And, you know, I learned to separate those, you know, from early age. And once you separate those, you're going to be a better ball player. What about your arm, the strong arm that you have? How much do you have to work on your throwing and playing the defense as opposed to the naturalness that comes from the hitting? No, I work on, you know, I work on everything. Uh, early in the spring, we worked on my base running. And, you know, right now I'm three for three in bags. But, uh, you know, work. I, I work on it. Um, do my arm exercises every chance I get, but I just got to go out there and play. That's my main job is once I'm out there, you know, it's me against them. Obviously a tremendous family man yourself, uh, just married and have a, a new son. How about your father? How, a couple years ago when you got a chance to play at the major league level with him, how special was that for you? Well, that was probably, that's the second biggest thing in my life. Uh, you know, the first was my son being born. And, I mean, it was a lot of fun. While, well, it lasted, but I wish he was still here to play. I mean, because we had a lot of fun, and it gives me a chance to really concentrate because he would sit there and tell me what I was doing wrong, and i just, you know, change it over right then and there. How different is it for you now that he's the minor league hitting instructor as opposed to being up here with the big club, and, and he's not here on a regular basis? It's a little different. Uh, you know, he'll tell me what I'm doing over the phone, and, you know, if he sees me one at bat, he can tell me, and that's all, and that's all it takes. 
We are indeed pleased to be joined by one of the all-time legends of the game of baseball, now working with the Los Angeles Dodgers as a special chairman or special advisor to the chairman of the board. And of course, that is Don Newcomb. And Nuke, uh, first of all, great to see you looking so well. I know you just had a birthday recently, and we can only hope that we live and look as great as you do at 83. But uh, so much to talk to you about. Let's first of all talk about your playing career. With the Brooklyn Dodgers moving out to Los Angeles, first of all, what was it like playing for some of the great teams that you played for with the Brooklyn Dodgers? Well, I, I go back, Ray, with Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Larry Doby. When it wasn't the proper thing to do in the United States uh, era, of that era, uh, to, to aspire to play baseball if you had black skin. And we had a commission in 1944, Kenneth Schumacher Landis, who said, they'll never play as long as I'm commissioner. But he, and the unfortunate... Well, he was unfortunate enough to pass away in 1944, and we got a new commissioner named Happy Chandler. And Happy Chandler said, I don't care if they can play, you know, what color they are, as long as they play baseball. And he told Brant Rickey, let's do it together, because they were the only two, Brant Rickey who owned the Dodgers and Commissioner Chandler now. And no other owner would go with them to do what they did in signing Jackie and Roy and me. And uh, we started, really, the civil rights movement in this country in 1945 when Jackie signed and then Roy and then me and uh, so that makes me pretty proud to, to, to go back that far in my memory bank to think about how it was and what we did to change this country of ours and we did change it Ray we changed it as his history will bear out we changed it because we 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 had to take a lot and then after a while uh, we gave a lot we gave a lot back and Jackie always said in meetings that we had between him and I and Roy he said, we're bitter now, and one day we're going to change the, uh, one letter in the word bitter. We're going to change the I to E, and things are going to get better. Mm. He said, mark my words now, guy, but we have to do the job. Nobody else can do what we're doing, and if we don't do it, it might not happen again for another 45, 50 years. You never tell. Negro Leagues Baseball, of course, prior to what you're just talking about, that was it. Negro Leagues Baseball, so many great players. As you think back to, of course, yourself and Roy Campanella and guys that Jackie Robinson made at the big leagues, how many players that you played against or with could have been Major League Baseball players? Well, I go back in, in, in the Negro Leagues, and without the Negro Leagues, it wouldn't have been the Jackie Robinsons, the Roy Campanellas, the Don Newcombs, the Willie Mays, Hank Aarons, and those guys, because they all came out of, we were all babies from the Negro Leagues. So God bless the Negro Leagues, and we, 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 I played against Satchel Page, I played against Josh Gibson, Buck Leonard, Cool Papa Bell, and I was only 17 years old when I started in the Negro Leagues as a high school dropout uh, because I had a chance to do something with my life, and I love baseball, so I wanted to do that, and I got the chance to do it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The man who got hit number 2,000 for the Minnesota Twins on Friday night as we taped this program, Puck, 2000. I know you've played this game very hard. What did it mean for you to get number 2000? Well, it's, it's been a lot for me. I think it means more to me than anybody falls because I have, I've had to overcome so much adversity in my life. I mean, from people telling me that when I was in high school and college that I was too little, I'd never make it, I'm too this, I'm too that. And and it goes back to say what I said all along is that all, all, all you got to do is give me a chance, man. I'll show you what I got. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. But just give me a chance. You know, Dave Winfield, we were in here last year when he got number 3,000, and I know some of the comments you made, 3,000, that's hard to believe. You're close to that, but as you think last night, you needed one. Were you feeling the pressure of trying to get number 2,000 out of the way? Actually, it was the night before you guys got here, Foss. I was talking to Winnie, and uh, he was hitting fourth. We were playing against California. I said, you know what, Winnie? I said, because I got a double against uh, Finley, and I'm coming up, and I'm going, man, I got 1,999, and I had two at-bats to do it. You know, I got a double like my second at-bat. 
And um, in my third at bat, man, I forget what I did, didn't do nothing. And before I batted the fourth time, I said, Winnie, I said, you know what, man? I said, why am I nervous, man? I said, I never get nervous. I said, the way that I swing, man, I said, I got the carefree attitude. Just go out there and just swing it, man. Let whatever happened, happen. And I said, I can't believe I'm nervous, man. And I didn't get it then. And then yesterday, I told Winnie, I said, today going to be the day, man. I said, I, I, I feel like I threw it all out of my mind. I said a prayer and just said, God, just help me. And just let me go, just let me go out there and just be the person that I am. And, and, that, and that's what got me through. I struck out the first time. Might have been a little uptight the first time against Welchie, but uh, he shook off a couple of times. And I was, trying to, I was trying to cheat on him a little bit. It didn't work fast. You know, it's interesting. Winfield last year, I remember Dave Keeman going for home run number 400. You've got superstars, Hall of Famers, yet when they're trying to attain that milestone, there is that nervous feeling. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's only human nature for us, I think. I mean, the, the more that you think about it, I think that when you think about it, you know, it kind of puts more pressure on it. Instead of just, if nobody ever told you what number you're coming <laughs> up on, just think about it. Nobody ever brought it up. You never know, and you just go out there and play. But, I mean, I think when people bring up, you know, tell you what number you're on, you know, you got 1996 or whatever, you need four more, yeah. then that kind of pushed the pressure. And I, and I watched Winf go through his, his thing last year, man, and I was pulling for him and went to Cleveland, man, he was struggling a little bit, and I said, come on, man, and me, him, and Shane Mack and Chuck Knobloff, we went out and, and I treated them, we went out and ate and, and just had a good time, man, and just didn't talk about baseball. Mm -hmm. You know, we just talked about life in general, how, how about this and about that, and just, you know, about how lucky we ought to be in this position and things like that. He come out the next day, he got three <laughs> knocks, then he got two the next day, then he came home and he eventually got the one against X. So, I mean, uh, it's fun. I, I, it's only human nature. I guess if you didn't worry about it, it'd be something wrong with you, Foss, I think, if you don't think about it. And I, I mean, that's just like a pitcher having a no-hitter through eight innings and, right. and not, you know, everybody sitting away from him, nobody <laughs> saying nothing to him. You know, it's kind of yeah. one of those situations. Yeah. We're visiting with Kirby Puckett on A's warm-up, back with more right after this. From the Metro, Metrodome, my guest is outfielder Kirby Puckett, and, and again, one of the, the hardest-working players, and I've always admired you, Puck, the way you played, and I've always told you that as we talked when we first came into town, you said, Foss, three more years and I'm out of here. Now, think about it. You got your 2,000 hit. If you get your 200 hits a year, you're going to come up short by about 200. As you, as you get to that 2,800 and you're maybe at the end of the three years, what are you going to think about as far as trying to get number 3,000? I don't know. I think, I, I think more people are pushing for me to get 3,000. I really am, false. <laughs> I mean, I think that 2,000 is, is, is a big achievement for me, you know, and I'm, I'm happy about everything that I've done. And, and if people ask me, what do I attribute it to? I say I attribute it to hard work and and, and, and just, just, just for my health. I mean, because God's given me my health false. I mean, as I told you before, I've never been on a disabled list. I've never been hurt for any extended period of time. I mean, I'm always, I'm always out there every day. As long as you got your health, I mean, not only in baseball, but in life. If you don't have your health, you know, I know a lot of people that have bad backs and bad this and can't do this. If God don't, doesn't really bless you, I'm not saying that you're not blessed because your back is hurt or whatever, but he's really, I'm really fortunate to be in this position. I give thanks to him for us, and I just go out and just ask him to just keep me healthy. If I'm healthy, I'll take my chance with anything that comes along. You know, watching you uh, get those five hits the other night, when you get locked in, it seems that no matter where the pitch is thrown, you're going to hit. I mean, you were th hitting pitches out of the strike zone. You, you got five or six pitches in the first of bat, and in the next five hits, I don't think you saw more than seven pitches. But when do you know you're locked in to swing the bat? Well, I, yesterday, actually, I didn't feel like I was locked in yesterday, Foss. It was just a case of uh, <laughs> I wanted to get that 2,000 out of the way, and it was like a big burden was off my shoulders once that happened. I said, well, I can relax now. I just can just be myself. And went up there, and I hit a good pitch off Welsh, the second hit up the middle. You know, it was down and away. And I was just trying to, you know, now be on first. I'm trying not to hit into a double play, man. I'm just trying to hit, hit a hole. And I would look, I always look to see where Gates is playing, where Bordick's playing, try to, you know, because they, they move. You know, some people move and according to what a pitch, pitch is going to pitch me or whatever. So I watch that, and I try to, try to just hopefully find a hole where they're not standing. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Reese of the California Angels is my guest on A's warm-up, and we're talking about your fungos, talking about starting with the Oakland Oaks. But want to talk especially about rooming with the great Babe Ruth, as you did when you went to the New York Yankees in 1930 and 31. What was it like, first of all, to be rooming with this great ball player? Well, it was unbelievable when they told me I was going to room with the Babe. Bob Schalke at that time was managing. He says, I'm going to room you with the babe. He says, I know uh, you take pretty good care of yourself. You might help the babe. Of course, uh, underneath it all, I thought, my God, nobody's going to handle the babe. Babe's going to do what he wants. But it was all right with me to go along with that. What was, what was his lifestyle like? And I know that watching the movie The Babe, there's uh, some controversy as to whether a lot of it was true or not. But you were with him. What was his life really like? Well, he had, he had what you call, he, he died around when he was 53 or 4, but he lived to be 100 at least. He, he lived a real full life. He was up all day and had him all night. But uh, it never seemed to affect, affect his playing. In fact, it might have helped him because he was nice and relaxed when he walked to the plate. And nothing ever bothered him. 
What about his size? I know in the movie they made him to be very big, large in a sense of maybe overweight. What was he like in that respect? When I knew him, he weighed 235 and uh, he's six, six foot two. And uh, his weight didn't seem to affect him. They used to say, try to pitch under his belly. That's the only way they could get him out. But don't get the ball out over the plate. He might kill somebody. Oh, that's amazing. Now, you were telling me before we started the interview about stories of, of card playing. Of course, you guys travel via the train throughout uh, the leagues, playing with Lou Gehrig and the Babe Ruth. Uh, what kind of card games did you have in, in doing that? Well, at that time, we were playing bridge. Uh, Lou Gehrig and I played Babe and a fellow named Harry Rice. And we had uh, now won a dollar and a quarter. <laughs> we played 20th, rather 20th. We won a dollar and a quarter, and... And uh, Lou Gehrig says, you know, it's getting late, and Gehrig was, had to, we're going to have to play a college team exhibition game. He says, it's very important to him. It's almost 12 o'clock, and, and Gehrig says, i got to get your rest. Babe says, you're not quitting. If you do, I'm going to tear the sheet up. So Lou Gehrig came to me and said, what do you think? I said, anything you fellas want. <laughs> so, uh, so we agreed to play another, and this time we beat him again. Now he owes a two and a half, and Gehrig says, this time I'm quitting. Babe says, I'm going to tear the sheet up. Gary said, go ahead and tear it up. Didn't ask me what I should or not. But he tore it up, and he still owes me two and a half dollars. One of the most generous men I've ever met in the game. But he never paid his debt. Never. He still owes it to me. But I'm not going to hold that against him. He, he, he spent it like it was going out of style. So if you could characterize Babe Ruth and put it in your own words, just what kind of individual was he? He was a very fine man, a very likable man, the greatest drawing card that ever played the game, no doubt about it. And he loved kids very honestly and faithfully. Special guest on A's warm-up this afternoon from the Oakland Coliseum is Robin Yount of the Milwaukee Brewers center fielder, great hitter, and a couple of weeks ago, Robin, you got hit number 3,000. Give us an idea of what you felt, your feelings, when you touched first base after getting that base hit. Well, Ray, it's, it's really hard to put into words, you know. You, you feel like you're running about two feet off the ground, and uh, um, it's just something, you know, it's similar to to playing in the postseason, you know, uh, playoffs and World Series. It's just, uh, you're on uh, cloud nine probably is the best way to describe it. What about throughout the year? Of course, a lot of expectations, the media talking about you're going to get the 3,000 hit. It's just a matter of when. What was the pressure like? What was the general attitude of yourself going through this season, knowing that eventually it was going to happen? Well, it, there wasn't really any pressure. I didn't feel at least. Um, it was. Uh, it turned out to be a lot more than I ever expected. I, I thought, you know, you'd end up, you know, it'd be another hit, and you, the people would applaud, and and uh, you'd go on from there. But uh, uh, it, it really turned out to be a pretty big deal. They, you know, that the, the uh, uh, attendance was real high in Milwaukee, and and then there was a ton of media coverage and this and that. And uh, before I knew it, it, it seemed like I was out there all by myself, and the, and the whole game was. Uh, uh, was basically being played around me, and that was that was a real strange feeling. When you think about the fact that, as you mentioned, in Milwaukee it happened where you played your entire career, how special was that for you to be wearing the Milwaukee Brewer uniform where you started your career and hopefully will end it? Well, I really wanted to, to do it in Milwaukee, like I said, because it became such a big deal there. You know, the, the night before we had uh, uh, three game homestand, I needed three hits. Uh, I got one the first night, one the second night, and I came up again the second night, and they and uh, uh, I was walked, and um, the fans got pretty upset. They started throwing stuff on the field and this and that. And uh, my feeling was though, if I don't get this hit the last game of the season, all that stuff was going to be thrown at me, you know. So uh, it, it ended up to be uh, to work out just right, getting it the the last last day of the homestand. Forget about the 3,000 hit, but again, the opportunity to play in the same uniform your whole career. Not, not very many players have that opportunity. You guys have three on your ball club, George, Brett, but just not that many. But again, how special is that to, to put on the same uniform day in and day out? Well, I've been real lucky. I've been in a, in a great organization. The Milwaukee Brewers have treated me fantastic throughout my throughout my career. The, the city has been one that uh, is a pretty low-key city, a small town, and I think that's really helped me uh, because my personality is such that I, I don't really uh, um, uh, enjoy all the attention and all that, but uh, uh, the fans have been great for me and it's just worked out really really well for me. Well, Jordan Monet's warm-up is a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest guys in the game of baseball, Red Shandies. And uh, Red, there's no doubt you continue to put the uniform on, you go out and you hit ground balls, you're with the Cardinals. How special is it for you to have all these years in baseball and continue to put the uniform on and go out and, and see this great game of baseball? Well, first of all, I've been pretty lucky in the game 
as long as I've been in it. And then now I go out here and hit fungos and with Tony and the coaches and uh, I don't I don't get in anybody's way and uh, Tony lets me do it. I go to spring training with him and Tony always likes for me to be around so I'm happy that he does and being around all these young ball players I think it uh, helps you keep you young and uh, you know you see a lot of good ball players like you did years ago so it, it's it's exciting for me and uh, when I say exciting I mean it. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt in watching you. Great history in St. Louis. I grew up a Cardinal fan and actually watched you uh, when I was growing up. But the, the one thing about the history of the Cardinals, you see all the retired numbers, all the great players. How proud are you to be a part of this great organization all these years, but especially as a player and a manager? Well, I've been pretty lucky, like I said, and uh, playing with a great guy, like Stan the Man Musial, and rooming with him. You know, in our days, we had roommates, and we roomed together for 10 years, and uh, that was a big thing, you know. We agreed with everything and played a lot of adult base, uh, day games in them days, and it gave you a good chance to go out and have a good dinner at night. And, and uh, whatever we decided, whatever he decided was okay, whatever I decided was okay. We were pretty pretty easy to get along with. So, And then with all the rest of the players here that I played with, you know, like the Slaughters and the Marions and so many more, Terry Moores, and uh, it was a big thrill for me. And then, you know, I got traded. I went to the mm -hmm. Giants. I played with the great Willie Mays. And then I uh, was in Milwaukee. I played with Henry Aaron and, wow. and Blue Burdett Spawn and uh, Eddie Matthews. And we had a great team there. So all in all. And then another big thing, when it, I, it was a big thing years ago to get uh, selected to the Hall of Fame, you know. And I, I played in 10 of them. And, uh, managed in two and coached in two yeah. so it was always a thrill for me to go in just to see the stars in the American League as well. Talk about Stan Musial and I say and you mentioned him your roommate and as a young kid growing up and coming up to old Sportsman's Park and, and watching you guys play and especially Stan Musial was my the guy that I, I idolized you know and I'm sure a lot of people did but but what was so great about him the way he hit the way he's been a true gentleman in the game of baseball well he not only on the field and his record shows what a great player he was and that's just the way he was off the field he was just a, a charitable man and anybody asked him to help in charities of some kind Stan was willing to do it and he spent a lot of time doing it and uh stan is just a joy you know he he was full of tricks and everything he he used to know a fellow from mascuda illinois down here and and uh, he was uh, in the insurance business and he knew uh, a lot of uh tricks you know houdini tricks and all of that <laughs> stuff and uh stan he, he he knew a lot of good ones and uh and, and, he, and he still liked when he played the harmonica, of course. He played the spoons on his legs. <laughs> he was just a great guy to be around. It, it was fun. When you went into another town, another restaurant or something, they all loved Stan. We're indeed privileged to be joined by Lee Ely, a longtime baseball man now with the Seattle Mariners. But, Lee, April 29th, 1983, as a manager of the Chicago Cubs, you went off on a tirade, as they say, that uh, probably is most famous because it's been 25 years, but in the city of Chicago, of course, during that period of time, Cubs were not winning. Still haven't won. This being the 100th year since they won a World Series. Take us back to that year and the cleaned-up version of basically what happened to get you to have this tirade 25 years ago. Well, first of all, I don't think I was really smart enough to handle the media at that time <laughs> of my career. But on that given day, we had lost to the Dodgers on a Lee Smith wild pitch, which was extremely unusual. And back then, you had to walk all the way down the left field line to get in your locker room. And you got, some, you got beat up pretty good verbally going down there. But this given day, I have two of my players getting fights. Uh, Larry, Bo uh, it was Keith Moreland first. He was a right fielder catcher and a good hitter. Somebody said something to him, and now he goes in the stands. And me and Vukovic, my dugout coach, had to break that up. And it couldn't have been two minutes later, Larry Bo Boa goes over the tarp. And he's getting in a fight, too. But there were some punches thrown in that one. So we break that up. And now I get in the locker room, and I got a bunch of guys that are kind of despondent. So we kind of get them elevated. And then I get in the room, and the first thing they say to me is, how come Buckner and Say aren't hitting? And I said, well, let's talk about the game. Well, did you know in L.A. they weren't very good teammates with one another? And I don't know what happened after that. He just, he just kind of kicked it off. And when I heard that thing after the game was over, uh, Dallas called me up to his office, and I heard it. I tell you, 
truth, Ray, I didn't know what the hell I did. I, I can't believe to this day I said it. But, you know, I did it. And uh, in some ways, if you, if you edit it, you'll find out that uh, if you really listen close, uh, I have a certain fondness for guys that play this game. And if they play it the right way, it doesn't necessarily mean they got to be stars. And that, that kind of ball club I had, they were those kind of guys, you know. And a lot of them blossomed, you know. Sandberg became a, a Hall of Famer, and Lee Smith should be in the Hall of Fame. And, and there was a lot of good ball players on that club. And, Lee, I think about Billy, uh, Bill Buckner, who forever in Boston, when he let the ball go through his legs, although that did not cost him the World Series, it contributed to the Mets winning that particular game. And you were telling me that you were flown back to Chicago this year, 25 years later, by the folks in Chicago. Tell us about that and what came about after that trip back there. Well, for some reason, it, it, it kind of caught fire and everybody wanted to know what happened. Uh, we, were tr we were selling something at that time for charity, Billy Pierce and the mm -hmm. Chicago Baseball Charities. It was a, a, a ball in, in a hand in a box, and if you pushed the button, you had a cleaned-up version of the tirade in there for selling purposes, right. but there was a disc on the bottom that, that was really? the real tirade. Wow. So anyway, that was part of it. But I think the good thing that came out of it is Comcast took a vote after three days. They asked the people of Chicago, uh, at this point, should Ilya be forgiven? And it was kind of neat. It was 77 to 23. I'm a forgiven guy. So, so I feel pretty good about that. But, you know, you, you do things sometimes and you don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's been a lot of things that have been done in our careers uh, that never made the press, and, and mine did. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. The legendary Ernie Harwell, great man, great gentleman, and of course, great broadcaster now with the Detroit Tigers for many years, and the 1968 team, and also the 1984 team. And I remember Sparky Anderson saying, it was the hardest year ever to manage because of the great start that you had. Talk about some of the great things that happened that year. 84 was just amazing. The Tigers won 35 out of the first 40 games, and uh, the typical Tiger game would be uh, Whitaker and uh, Travel would get on base. They'd probably both score. And then the pitchers, uh, Morris or Wilcox or Petrie or some of those guys would uh, have a fairly easy time going through the game, and it sort of symbolized the whole season. Uh, nobody ever got close to them. Toronto got within about seven games but always fell back. Tigers won their division easily. They swept the series with Kansas City in the playoffs, and then they beat uh, San Diego with ease in the World Series, lost only one game. You know, I have to go back to a gentleman who's a broadcast booth over, Al Kaline, Hall of Famer. I enjoyed meeting him, playing against him for a brief time. What stands out as a special thing about Al Kaline from your standpoint? Al Kaline was a consummate professional. He could do everything well. He was a great team man. He was a very high-class guy. He managed to stay around Detroit, go into business there. He's now been on TV, and he is a Mr. Tiger, certainly in the modern era and a great friend and a great person. Marty, what about the stadium itself? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier it's tough to compete in today's baseball with Tiger Stadium, but what about the short porch and right field? Uh, you've seen a lot of balls travel over the right field roof. Uh, what, what stands out in your mind? Well, in the old ballpark, I think those uh, balls hit over the right field roof. They're doing about 32 of them. We've had about four over the left field roof. 
And the uh, overhang is unique. They wanted to expand uh, and have uh, an upper deck in right field, and they didn't have any expansion room over Trumbull Avenue, so they had to do it backwards and put it over the field. So a lot of times that right fielder will uh, stand out there waiting, and the ball, instead of coming into his glove, will hit the overhang and be a home run. <laughs> what about Reggie Jackson in the All-Star game? I think 1971. I was supposed to play in that game. Unfortunately, was injured, but uh, obviously that, that has to be a shot that stands out. Oh, that was a great performance. I had done some work on the field for the commission. I wasn't broadcasting that day, so I went out and sat in in the third deck in right field all by myself, and it was a great thing. The wind was blowing out nicely, and uh, Reggie hit that ball. I think as hard a ball as I've ever seen hit. It hit the transformer, but it hit it when it was on the rise, and it's no telling how far that ball would have gone. It is the final weekend of baseball. We're at Safeco Field in Seattle and happen to be joined by one of the all-time greats. So on the field and off the field as well, that is Mel Stoudemire. And Mel, of course, now pitching coach with the Seattle Mariners. And I have to bring this up. We talked about it start before we started the interview. You're one of only two pitchers, I think, in the history of the game to hit it inside the park grand slam. Now, you played at Old Yankee Stadium before it was renovated. Kind of take us through that and how special that was to hit that inside the park grand slam. Well, Ray, first of all, I needed all four of those <laughs> runs. At that, at that time, I, I think that, uh, you know, I was trailing in the game, uh, actually trailing in the game 3-2, to two, and it was uh, about the middle of the game, fifth inning, somewhere in there, and uh, my good friend Bill Monbuquet hung yeah. me a slider. And I hit it to left center field, and as you remember, the size of old Yankee Stadium was monstrous. The ball ro rolled to the, uh, it rolled to the uh, left center field fence, kicked back toward the monuments, which used to be on the field. And for some reason, uh, uh, Carl Yastrzemski was playing me short and also playing me a little pull. So he had a long run. Reggie Smith was in center field, and he was playing me to right center, and he had a long run. <laughs> And I, I remember rounding the bases, and I remember Frank Cassetti, his arm was still going, and I said, oh, my God, I'm going to have to try to score here. And I wanted to stop at third. But it, it was, uh, you know, it was a thrill I had that day. And, and uh, you know, everybody remembers that. So I guess it was, you know, a special, a special thing. <laughs> well, I think people would have to remember what Yankee Stadium was like prior to the renovation in the mid-'70s. But, but just kind of in closing, talk about the monuments being in play in center field. It was so huge that they were in play. Well, you know, the fence in center field there, right behind the monuments, was 461. You know, and at that time, uh, you know, I mean, that, that was a monstrous poke to hit out there. Uh, left center was 457. And in right center field, uh, I think it was uh, uh, maybe 430-something. So the, the field was monstrous. It was short down the lines and everything. But what a, uh, what a monstrous field, you know. And I, I can recall some of the right-handed hitters. And maybe you had one of those days that you can relate to. I remember Harmon Killebrew coming in one time. And he hit four balls. That were that were probably about 430 feet each, and he took an 0 for 4, <laughs> and I'm sure he left that day cussing Yankee Stadium. But it was it was a tremendous place if you could keep him from pulling the ball to pitch. 25th anniversary of the Oakland A's at the Coliseum. My guest is Hall of Famer Jim Catfish Hunter. But let's go back 25 years playing for the Oakland Athletics, and let's talk about the perfect game because I know we've talked before. We've never really talked about it as far as I'm concerned. What do you remember most about that particular ball game? The main thing I remember is I was taking batting practice and Bob Kennedy walked out and told me to get out of the cage. And uh, I thought he was joking. I kept swinging and I said, I got seven more swings. And he says, no, get out of the cage. I said, no, I got seven more swings. And all at once he walked right in front of the cage and told the batting practice pitcher to quit, told me to get out. And I kind of wrapped the bat around the cage, you know, and walked in the clubhouse and I was mad. And then after the game, uh, the last hitter was Rich Reese and I struck him out. Here comes Bob Kennedy running out there, says, nice pitching. I said, how about my hitting? Because I went three for four and knocked in three runs and scored the fourth one. He said, uh, well, you hit pretty well, too. <laughs> but I think that really triggered it off because, you know, it got me upset and uh, made me get out of the cage because I love to swing the bat. Right. All pitchers love to, you know, get out there if they couldn't hit. Yeah. Jim Pagliaroni, who was your catcher during mm -hmm. that time. Now, I know catching you when I came over here, you never shook me off. Did that go back in that ball game too, or what do you remember about whether you shook him off or you just go with what he called? Go with what he called. You know, I figured it, you know. He was up there closer to the hitter. He could see if he was up in the batter's box or back or where he had his feet set. He knew more about the uh, way the hitter was than I did. So uh, once in a while I'd shake my head, you know, a little bit and didn't mean anything, and I kept, you know, winding up. But uh, that night it seemed like I had uh, great control. I could throw the ball anytime, anywhere, where I wanted to. And I think it was uh, the 2-2 pitch. I threw a slider to Rich Reese, the last hitter. It was right down the middle. Umpire went ball. 
Heck, I'll throw him another one. <laughs> you know, it didn't bother me at all because I knew I had great control that night. You know, winning the 20 games, I think it was eight years in a row, at least 20 ball games that you won, the control that you had, and again, having the privilege of catching you, setting up on the outside corner, sometime about three or four inches outside in the ball zone, but you had tremendous control. How were you able to develop the kind of control that you had? I think it was uh, probably it come about when I was pitching in high school and, and to my uh, brothers. I had four older brothers, and if I didn't throw strikes, I didn't get to play. So I had to throw strikes. And I always was throwing rocks or corn cobs or something all the time at uh, telephone poles out in the country. But the main thing, I love to throw to a hitter. Instead of throwing, to me, throwing off the side, off the mound, never did me any good. It got my arm loose. That was it. I always loved to throw to hit. I always loved to throw batting practice because I threw enough against the Oakland A's. And when I went to the Yankees, I knew how to pitch them. And to them, it's better for them, you know, to hit live pitching and just uh, just be hitting off of machines or somebody just throwing strikes all the time. I think, uh, you know, by throwing like this, you know how to move the ball around. You don't throw to one place all the time. We are indeed pleased to have a special guest on A's warm-up. That is Tony Phillips, longtime player in Major League Baseball, but more importantly with the Oakland Athletics 1989 World Championships. Of course, Tony in town for the Ricky Henderson number 24 being retired. And, and first of all, just talk about Ricky Henderson, just what you thought of him as a player, because the fact that you played with him, but what did you see in Ricky Henderson that was special about him? Well, before I get into Ricky as a player, uh, I think it's more important to for people to understand Ricky Henderson, what he meant to me as a person. When I got to the big leagues in 82, when Billy Martin was here, he kind of took me under his wing, you know, and he taught me, uh, uh, explained to me what a leadoff hitter was supposed to be. I'm talking about, he let me stay at his place in Oakland Hills. Mm. I'm talking about, I patterned my whole career after Ricky in our conversations. So to me, uh, more than a baseball player, I think Ricky spent, uh, I really appreciate the time and really, uh, a treasure of time that he spent with me off the field trying to teach me how to go about my business, how to become a better player, how to understand the game uh, a lot better at this level. And as a as a player, everybody knows he's, you know, I, I was so proud of him. I, we, we were at dinner last night. I told him I was so proud of him, uh, seeing him on the podium at, at the Hall of Fame. Right. I told him I, I was almost crying. Yeah. He was, uh, you know, his star shined right. uh, at that particular moment and all the work that he's done and the sacrifice and the dedication and the commitment that led up to the Hall of Fame is just tremendous. And I was uh, glad I was a part of, uh, of being around Ricky to get to know him. Tony, it's interesting. You, you mentioned about what he did to help you. But as a leadoff hitter, nobody I don't think will ever compare to Ricky Henderson. With the power, 81 leadoff home runs, you get on base as a walk, it's a, it's a double or a triple because he'll steal a couple of bases. What did he teach you as far as being a leadoff hitter? Well, he taught me, first of all, my job was to get on base and score runs. Forget the average. You get on base and you score runs. So at that particular moment, I saw him on the, uh, uh, in that crouch, and that's when I went into my crouch on the left side because I figured, you know, a smaller strike zone is going to be tough for, for the pitchers at those strikes. And, and, and that really st struck home for me. As long as my own base percentage was up around 400, then I was doing my job. And it's ironic that that's the way he thought. Hmm. But then he still had the numbers that he had with home runs. You know, he was just trying to get on base. You know, and with the talents that um, that he's dis displayed over 25 years, you know, with power and, and, and speed, uh, you know, it's, it's, it comes around once, uh, once every blue moon. Have you ever seen anyone to intimidate a pitcher as much as Ricky Henderson? I mean, when he got on base, the pitcher just seemed like, I don't want to throw the ball to the plate because I know he's going to steal. And if I throw it to the plate, I have to throw a strike. The hitter might hit a home run. But have you ever seen anybody, or what do, you, do you think we'll ever see anybody who did what Ricky did to opposing pitchers? Not at all. Even before he got on base. Yeah. I don't want to walk him. <laughs> well, I don't want to throw down the middle because he'll take me deep as one run. So it's like, you know, they're in a pickle every time he came up. Uh, and... and Pitching to Ricky, you just pick your pores, and you pitch to him. You he may take you deep, you may get a double, or you walk him. He may, you know, still uh, second, still third. So, you know, he was a total package. Is yeah, I think he's the best leadoff hitter that that, that I ever seen play anyway. Hall of Famer Bob Feller joins us, and he's warm up talking about how he got started his entire career with the Cleveland Indians. Played for the only world, the last World Championship in 1948. But Bob, you had a, a 
a chance to play against some great players. Now, you were a great pitcher and probably the best in your era. But playing against, especially in 1941, you think about DiMaggio and Williams. Talk about some of the players you played against and how great they were, especially facing you as one of the great pitchers pitching. Well, I, Joe DiMaggio came up the same year I did. And Joe hit me pretty well before the war. He was four years older than I. I pitched against Lou Gehrig for two and a half years. Lou Gehrig was not a good curveball hitter. Mm -hmm. and I had a good curveball from, from just when I was a kid. I missed Babe Ruth by one year. And uh, some of the great, great hitters in the National League, like Hank Lieber, played for the Giants. We played a lot of exhibition games. I pitched against Carl Hubble, and, and Bill Terry was a manager of the Giants. And all these exhibition games we played, we were training in New Orleans, and they were up in the Baton, Rouge, Baton Rouge at LSU. Well, we had some great ball, Joe Cronin and Jimmy Fox. Uh, I can go around the, go, go around the league. Uh, Ted Williams, of course. Ted came up in 1939. Ted came up as a, de a dead low ball hitter by, by two years. Uh, he was hitting, he hit 406 in 1941, just before World War II, and uh, he, he gave him to hit the high fastball or foul it off, but he always was a better low ball hitter. He, had, he made pitchers throw strikes. He did not go after bad pitches. Bob, when you're talking about uh, Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio and all those great players you played against, who could you say was the best hitter? And, and, and I say that because in 41, it was the 56-game hitting streak by Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams hitting 406. You had some pretty good players there, but in your mind, who was the best? The base, best baseball player in history was Babe Ruth. Hmm. He could do it all. He could run bases. He could pitch. I saw him pitch in 1928 in Des Moines, Iowa for the, for the Boston Babes against the Larry Palouz. Williams was the best left-hand hitter ever pitched to. Rogers Hornsby was far the best right-hand hitter. DiMaggio was a very good center fielder. Uh, we had a lot of great ball players in, in the 30s and 40s and 50s. There are some very good ball players today. There's not enough of them, and they don't know the fundamentals like they did during my time, and I'm sure you noticed that in your work. Don Zimmer joins me today's warm-up. Uh, he's an important man with the Tampa Bay Rays because they're in first place, and that's what makes it so special because I'm sure, Zim, you have helped them get in the first place. But, you know, you play for the Brooklyn Dodgers and this being the 50th anniversary of the Dodgers in Los Angeles, moving from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. You were part of that move. What was that? What do you remember about that? Well, you know, when it was told, it uh, looked like they were leaving Brooklyn. I don't think none of us believed it. Uh, and finally, one day, it happened, and there we leaving uh, Brooklyn, of all places, to go to Los Angeles. And I can remember playing the first game in the Coliseum, an old football. Actually, it was built for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And remember the Chinese fence and left field and this and that. And uh, it was just, I can remember the first game, uh, 80,000 80, or whatever it may be. And they had to put up different, they had to take a football field and make it into a baseball mm. field. And it was strange for a while. But uh, I think we wound up seventh the first year in 1958 uh, in an 18 league. And Buzzy Bavese made one trade. He traded Gino Somoli to the Cardinals for mm. Wally Moon. Mm. And the next year we won the World Series. Wow. So uh, it, it was just a, a, a move that you never thought would be made. But baseball, you, you don't try to outguess what's <laughs> going to happen in baseball. Of course, Sim, in Brooklyn, as well as uh, the Giants and also New York and the Yankees, three teams. In New York, and of course, we were just at Yankee Stadium. They're closing that place down after 85 years. But what was it like to have three teams in one city? Well, it was amazing. And to stop and think, you had three center fielders: Willie Mays, Duke, and uh, and Mickey, right. in in one city. Can you imagine that? And I always looked at it. Uh, I was a very mediocre player, and to think that I played with guys like Duke Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, Gil Hodges, mm -hmm. Campanella—it's something that uh, you just can't put in words. How good was Roy Campanella? He was awful good. He was awful good. And if you think you could sneak a high fastball by him, eye high, that's the one he knocked in the seats. I mean, to think that I think him and Yogi both have won three, uh, what is it, MVPs. Uh, he, he was a great player. He didn't have a great arm, but he was like a cat. He was quick as a cat and threw the ball to second base with a little sink to it, but got rid of it like a second baseman would on a double play. He was a great player. Now, with three teams, and granted, there are a lot of people now. I don't know how many were there in the in the fifties, but how did they support? How did they determine who they're going to support? What, you mean in New York? Yeah. In, but well, I, I don't think we had 
38,000 every day, you know, uh, at any park. Uh, I always think of the Polo Grounds. I don't know if you ever got to see the Polo Grounds, but this was a unique ballpark, the Polo Grounds. It was fun to go to the Polo Grounds. Of course, I, I loved Yankee Stadium, and I loved Ebbets Field. The Polo Grounds was a very unique field. If you remember, or if you ever heard about it, 265, 268 down each line, but you needed a cab ride to hit it out of the center field, and that's where Willie Mays could run all day and make all the great catches. It was just a great place to play, and I've been so fortunate to be in such great towns in this game that, like I say, I've been a lucky man. We're happy to be joined by the newest member of the Hall of Fame, Ford Frick winner for 2008. That is Dave Niehaus, and Dave couldn't be happier for you. Being in the Hall of Fame, you're wearing this jacket proudly. I hope you wear it 365 days a year, but kind of take us back to a month ago and the weekend of enjoying the Hall of Fame for you. Really, I'm still waiting for somebody to pinch me and tell me it's a dream. That really didn't happen. That's what it was like. It was ethereal. I, I got there on a Thursday, and, and I had to leave after uh, the induction ceremonies on Sunday because I had to get to uh, Albany to catch a flight to go down to Dallas to do a game the next day. But to have 56 uh, of the Hall of Famers there, the most Hall of Famers that any induction ceremony, I think only seven living members were not there. And to hobnob with them and sit around and chat and eat with them and go to parties with them and be in places that other people couldn't go with them was a dream of any baseball fan's life, let alone broadcaster. But to be able to go to the Hall of Fame and go down in the catacombs and see some of the great artifacts that people don't get to see uh, was, was, a, was a thrill. Uh, Reggie Jackson gave me some very sound advice uh, when we were in playing the Yankees over Memorial Day weekend. I asked him, what was it like being up there? And he said, just don't turn around. Don't turn around. You'll be so intimidated that you'll melt. And then sure enough, the Saturday night, going to a party with all these guys, Wade Boggs and Bill Mazeroski and Phil Necro, all is you're going to cry, you're going to cry, you're going to cry. And I remember Maz's speech in 2001. Last about 35 seconds, mm -hmm. he sat down, he melted like, you know, butter. And I said, Maz, I can inhale and my speech will be longer than yours. <laughs> so that kind of broke the tension there. But it's a funny thing how you really have not fear, but you have such trepidation about going up there mm -hmm. and, and talking and, and letting people know your emotions and, and letting your heart speak more than your voice. And I, that's exactly what I did. I actually wrote that in about 15, 20 minutes uh, the day before because I thought about it ever since they called me my birthday and told me that I was going to be there. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to make a speech. And I know same thing's going to happen to me that happened to Maz. I just knew it was going to happen. But all of a sudden, I get up there and started talking, and a, and a calmness came over me like I've never had in my life, and I got through it. Do you think it was your father who, as you were listening at 11 years of age, and you told the story about your father with a beverage, and you heard Harry Carey make the call, how much just thinking maybe about him that was able to calm you down? It might. It might have, because that was a true story uh, about, you know, in the hot, humid nights of Indiana, you growing up in, in Illinois. You know what I'm talking about with the lightning bugs and bugs in the mason jars and, and getting uh, <coughs> the ice pick to... Punch holes in them and putting those lightning bugs in there and then just kind of swishing them between their thumb and the forefinger to see, watch them glow. But then to, to hear that voice come out of that floor model Zenith radio, you know, as a little kid, and, and it just carries at night anyway. Mm -hmm. It might be. It could be. It is. You, you jump three or four inches off the, off the swing or something like that. And, and as I meant, I, I was never so disappointed in my life when I went to Old Sportsman's <laughs> Park, St. Louis, on my first major league game. I thought... You know, it was a Parthenon or something like that. There were gods there instead of baseball players. But uh, that's the way it all started. We are joined by Dave Niehaus, the only broadcaster, 1977, first year with the Mariners in Seattle. Dave Niehaus, who went to Baseball's Hall of Fame one month ago in the broadcaster's wing, been the announcer, the broadcaster for all those years. Did you think, Dave, I mean, I've thought for many, many years that you should have been in the Hall of Fame before now. Is there that thought? I know Dick Williams said, is it, maybe it's never going to happen. That ever crossed your mind? No, not at all. I didn't, I didn't think I ever would be, oh, first of all. I, I really didn't. I never, I never thought it ever would be. As a matter of fact, when they called me, I didn't know that it was the day that they were going to announce the award. I didn't worry about it. I, I did know that the last couple of years I'd been mentioned as, as one of the finalists. But, uh, you know, why worry yourself to death about it? And I didn't. So I didn't expect it. And when I got it, I was really overwhelmed with it. 
And so, no, it, it, it was something that that you hope that someday you, you will get. After all, it's our Academy Award, our Oscar. You can't, it, guys in my business, and you got never can get any award, I don't think, any higher, uh, perhaps. I don't know what it would be, though. But uh, when it happened, it, you know, made me elated. Uh, but, but I never sought it. I know Dennis Eckler said, I think it was a good point, that you retire, you have to wait five years as a player before you're eligible. And he said that just kind of, that's the end. From your standpoint, you've been broadcasting all these years. How much, I mean, I hope you're going to broadcast for a lot, much longer, but the fact that you're in the Hall of Fame now, that's not going to slow you down, is it? No, no. I've never worked a day in my life. Why go to work? You know, I mean, <laughs> heavens, no. I mean, those that are lucky enough to do this, you play, uh, you to play for a while, and now to be in this business and, and to be able to come out to a ballpark every day, no matter how good or how bad you are, you know it's only going to last for three hours, sometimes five hours, but very rarely. <laughs> Seems like some of them last for five hours. But even in a lean year like this one, there's always something that happens in a baseball game. You, you scratch your head. Have I ever seen that before? You know, there's always some little thing, some little inconsequential thing that I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. And, and that's after doing six, 7,000 ball games. So I think that's the romance of the game more than anything else to, to go out and see what's going to happen tonight. You brought up a very good point. The beginning of your career here in Seattle, club was horrible. Barely, you didn't play 500 for a long time. What kept you going during that period of time? And more importantly, to get this team, get this stadium built, because perhaps the 1995 season, but to see the club to start to get better, even though this year may not be as good as people thought. Well, it took 15 years, first of all, to even get to 500. I thought realistically when I came up here from the Angels in 1977 that it would take five years to be a 500 ball club, or at least competitive. Uh, I was wrong, and people are there with the have-nots that said this will this is not baseball territory. And I said, hey, give them at least a club, club that's competitive. They don't have to win the division, they don't have to win the World Series, but give them a club that's competitive, and it'll be fertile baseball territory. Well, I was proven to be right in 1995, 1991. We finally broke 500. Jim Lefevre was our manager, and for doing that, he got fired. Right. <laughs> and, and then Bill Plummer took over, and then Lou took over in '93. And there were 10 marvelous years with Lou Pinella. And then the 95 thing just bubbled and gurgled and, and, and was a fantasy as far as the year was concerned. And now we're back out in the desert again <laughs> looking for an oasis. But somewhere out there there's a palm tree. Somewhere out there there's some water. Please get it to me. One final thought. On a positive note, the nice tribute they have here, and I don't know if they're running it every day, but Marty Brenneman, Vince Scully, Joe Gargioli, Hall of Famers like yourself, how great is that to look up and know now that you're a part of that, and one day you're going to be giving congratulations to somebody who's in the Hall of Fame like you? Well, first of all, you go in that little area where they have the Mike Mann Award, which is right off of where the plaques are. And you see your picture there. You're one of 32. My picture will be all alone yeah. on the right there for one year. And then it will go down below with the rest as a new one, his name. And you look at those pictures and you think, you know, do I really belong there? Do I really belong there? And, and I, I don't know if I can really answer that. I don't know if I can really answer that. I'll answer for you, my friend. <laughs> You definitely deserve to be there. Whether you thought you were going to go or not, you should have been there a long time ago. The most important thing, you're wearing the jacket, you're in the Hall of Fame, you deserve it. Thank you, my friend. It's always great to chat with you, Ray. Thank you very much. That is Dave Niehaus, the newest member of the Broadcasters Wing of the Hall of Fame. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.